The Deal Lawyer Podcast with John Andrews, powered by JMW Solicitors. Hello and welcome to the Deal Lawyer Podcast. I'm John Andrews. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that today I'm joined by Richard Parkinson, who's a partner in JMW and a head of commercial based in our Manchester office. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. How are you doing? Yeah, very, very good. Thank you. Now, you're the guy that whose job I don't envy. You're the one, you're the detail man, looking at contracts, telling us what should go into them, what should come out of them, and, and how to incorporate them. So, uh, tell me a bit, Richard, in terms of um, setting up a, a contract with your clients and incorporating that contract in, into the business you're, you're doing with them, what, what are the key key processes involved in that? Firstly, I think you, you're absolutely right to focus on incorporation because you can have the best terms and conditions, you can have the best contracts in the world. But if you're not incorporating those into the contract properly, um, you might as well just have very expensive wallpaper, quite frankly. Um, so you've got to look at how, how you're going to do it. I mean, the the age-honoured thing that you sometimes hear from clients is, well, I send out my terms and conditions on the back of every invoice. Uh, so, you know, everyone knows what my terms are. So that's that forms the basis of the contract, doesn't it? But unfortunately, it doesn't really work that way if you if you're relying on your terms being on the back of your invoice unfortunately that's a bit too late the contract has already been formed um the contract in many ways has probably already been actually performed as well you know you've delivered the goods and at that stage you just then giving um the terms and conditions so the key thing is to try and get your terms um get your terms to your customers as soon in the process as you can um that is of course if you're dealing with say a, a set of standard terms and conditions so i would suggest normally that you have it on any quotations have it with any sales information that you might have there have it on your website and have you have things referring to your terms and conditions in in your emails uh have it have it there the the great i almost i always think of incorporation as a, ten, a, a sliding scale of 10 yeah and at the top of that 10 i have the customer signing off on your terms and conditions and having something set down and saying, right, I, I agree that these terms and conditions apply to this contract signed. I think that's absolutely 10 out of 10. You're going to do that. However, we appreciate, you know, we're not all here in our lawyer's white tower. Um, you know, and business couldn't operate in that way. You just can't have contracts going that way. I think, Coming down to the other end, um, number one is what I referred to before, where you've got the things on the back of your invoice. As I said, it's too late at that stage. Um, what you might have if, if you deal with that customer a lot, you could potentially build an argument that because you've dealt with them a lot, they knew what your terms and conditions were, and you've got this um, relationship built here. Is that, is that sort of is that this terminology course of dealings? Something? Course of dealings, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That, that's where that's where you get to with that. But in the middle, there's, there's like, a, as I say, a varying scale there. But where you want to be is as far up as you can be on that. So it might be, for example, that you have a credit process 
and people come to you and they say, well, I want credit. So what you could do is build into your credit process as part of the credit application form that they may sign something saying all all sales will be subject to our standard terms and conditions. And that then gives you a really good basis. It's slightly less than each contract being signed, but you've got something signed from the customer. But then again, good housekeeping, follow that up every time, every time you send a quotation, make sure you send your terms and conditions, they send in an order. It's inevitably going to have their terms and conditions referenced, their purchase order terms and conditions referenced. So you need to go back and say no, and acknowledge of order saying no it's on our terms and conditions again and hopefully you're the last shot in what's called the battle of the forms i was going to say coming down go i know yeah yeah, well i I, i'm old school so when i first started practicing i don't think the internet actually even existed or was in its early days and so you had paper forms and it was exactly that the battle of the forms going backwards and forwards and I spent a number of years litigating cases where we were trying to get a court to determine whose terms applied. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's it's um, and it, it you know can can end up that way. And you know, even with the internet, you've still got that. You've got people referring to different sets of terms and conditions, and you've got to look at the one that is the last before the contracts formed or performed. Um, and that's not that, that's not always clear, is it? I mean, they're, they're absolutely not different times. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not always clear. And, you know, our litigation colleagues you know, love a an argument on whose terms and conditions do apply. But I think it's, you know, the key thing for businesses is to have a process in place that if if somebody sends in their purchase order and that refers to their terms, that we don't do anything that says that we're we're accepting the order, because if you're yeah. accepting their order then you're not accepting it on the basis of their purchase order. It's an acknowledgement of order that shows um, our terms and conditions apply. And then if nothing else happens, you've got a good chance that you've won the battle of the forms. But if they then send back in their terms and conditions, you've got to be on the ball. You've got to be on the ball and have somebody, some sort of escalation process maybe, that you know if that happens, it's escalated and there's some sort of negotiation that goes on with the client to sort of say, look, it's we can't deal on your terms and conditions. Let's get an agreement between the two of us. What's going to apply? If there's certain terms in our contract that you can't deal with, then you know let's discuss them and come to an amicable arrangement around that. But at least then both parties will be clear as to what terms actually govern the contract. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I guess sort of taking the conversation on a little bit to, to put it in, a, in an, uh, an M&A context, um, Part of the due diligence process that, that, that we do when we're doing deals is, is to look at the contractual arrangements with clients. You know, clearly whether or not the, the terms of business have been incorporated is, is a is a key part of that. Um, and then there are going to be certain contractual provisions um, w- within those agreements that that we want to have a look at and, and draw to the client's attention. Um, uh, when, when, when you're drafting the contract or when you're getting involved in the in the due diligence process in the context of a deal, what particular call clauses did you look out for and do you draw to your client's attention? Well, there's a few, really. I mean, one of the key things is pricing. Yeah. Is there an ability – is the pricing secured? You know, is there an option for the other side? You know, if, you, if, if you're the buying party, if you're acting for the buying party here – in the in the in the contractual process, not necessarily in the deal process, but yeah. on the contracting process. If you're dealing for the 
um, person who's buying products, can you be certain that those prices that the business is currently enjoying are going to be the same going forward? You're yep. not going to be subject to a massive price hike um, for any reason or the, the the seller doesn't have the right to, to increase the prices. So that's, that's one of them. Um, second thing that I would generally tend to look at is the liability provisions in terms of, you know, are those pretty um, much as you'd expect? Yeah. There's no great indemnities in there. One party isn't taking a risk that you wouldn't expect them to take um, in in business. So, for example, yeah. if a party's selling products out, making sure that they're putting appropriate caps on their liability that you'd expect, yeah. you know, so the business doesn't have any uh, you know unexploded skeletons in the cupboard. It's one thing having skeletons in there, but it's the ones that you don't know about and that just could just come back and haunt you. Yeah. Um, I, guess, I guess on the converse of that, actually, if you're if you're looking at suppliers to the business, you probably want to make sure that they haven't unreasonably limited their liability in their contracts, don't you? Absolutely. If you, so if you're buying products in and they're defective, that you've actually got something of a, a reasonable remedy. Yeah. Okay. You know, every business is going to seek to every well advised business is going to look to seek to limit its liability, and you know, there's a, there's market practices that arise limiting around the contract value but giving yourself some sort of protection in there you know yeah. but you, what what i'd be looking for anyway is that there's not something that's sort of out of kilter in there yeah i guess i guess another minefield can be termination clauses absolutely yeah um quite often when we when we're looking at due diligence clients and advisors um can sometimes sort of fixate on what are called change of control clauses yeah, uh, which are clauses that allow a contracting party to terminate should the other should the other party undergo a change of control, so a change of ownership. So, yeah. absolutely, that is key in a transaction because inevitably, if it's a share sale, the ownership of that party will um, will tr- will be changing. Yeah, that will trigger that. Right now, you've got to always look at a change of control clause because not all of them are the same. Yeah. Um, some say if there's any change of control, we can terminate. Yeah. Which is, you know, a, a very onerous provision. And Others sorry, just in the context of a of a of an MA deal when we're looking at change of control definition in, in a contract, that typically would be what, a change fifty one percent or more of the shares change in hand? Yeah, it, it can be ownership, 51% of the shares. It could be a change of the board. Uh, it could be it could be um, the the ability to direct that, that company. So it could yeah. be, you know, it, it just, it, you've got to look at the definition of what change of control actually means. Yeah. But as I was saying, as I was saying before, you know, there's, there's different vari- varieties of change of control clause. You can have ones that just say, if you if there's a change of control to the benefit of one of our competitors, right, then we can terminate. So yeah. it's understanding who you are. So if you if say for example you're in an auction process, a change of control clause like that might yeah, work yeah. for your benefit if you're bidding and you're not a competitor of the of the other party. Yeah. So so that's one key thing to be looking at. But I think you've just got to then take a step back and say, well. Okay, there may or may not be a change of control clause in there, 
But you're then going to take a step back and almost say, well, what other rights for termination are there? Yeah. Because you you can fixate on the change control clause, but what you could miss, or not, not miss, but what you could take your focus off is a right for a party just to terminate for convenience yeah. in a short period. So you've got, there may well be a change of control clause in there. You think, well, I can get around that because I'm not a competitor or I can get consent from the other party. But in reality, they've got just a right to terminate for no reason and no yeah. remedy for you on 30 days notice. Yeah, and, and, and that's a key factor. When you're looking at a business, you look at what its contractual arrangements are, what you really want from a, from a buyer's point of view, a long-term commitment. So you know you've got a guaranteed revenue stream coming from those contracts. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I guess, I guess again, looking on, on the converse side of it, suppliers into the company that you're acquiring. Um, I, I've done a lot of work, for example, in the facilities management and, and contract cleaning industry um and they very commonly have rollover clauses if you don't terminate within certain parameters and mm -hmm. is that something that you'd you'd be looking out for yeah absolutely again those are things that you can get st stuck in traps with you know if you if you don't terminate at the end of the initial period it then rolls over for a three-year period and so on and yeah, so on exactly. and it's just again you know if if you're taking on that sort of business, making sure that you are seeing those sorts of things and diarising them for a post, for post the uh, transaction completing, yeah. you've actually got a diary of when you need to serve your notice. You know, there are certain clauses that they are very, very tight. So it's you've got to serve at least three months' notice, but it's got to be served before the after six months but no later than four yeah. months yeah <laughs> I've, I've seen some of those i've had to read them three or four times i've drafted i've with... drafted lots <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh so so if, if we're if we're if we're looking at a, a, somebody's looking to sell their business and they want to get their house in order from from a contractual point of view and sort of any 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 key tips i mean from my point of view acting from buy actually from a buyer what i want to see is a clean suite of documents as tight as they can be if you're acting for the seller i guess best advice is is to get those in order well in advance of a, of a contemplated sale really Absolutely. I think I think the first thing to do is if you're acting if you if you're selling your business is to take a look and look at the key contracts as well. Sort of triage contracts almost. Yeah. Say which ones are the ones that are absolutely vital for the business and I'll focus my attention on those to start with. Because if I get those right, I can then flow that into everything else. And it's those contracts that the buyers will be generally sort of focusing on. But and you, you want to be spending your time on to actually sort of make sure that those ones those ones are right. But it's yeah, it's almost applying that. What would a buyer be looking for? Almost doing a reverse due diligence yourself. Yes. Yeah. You're looking at things like termination. Looking at things like liability. Is your major supplier actually contracted to you? Yeah. Um, are your major customers actually contracted to you? Does do you have certainty in relation to price? Have you got long term commitments? Yeah. Again, think about who your potential buyers might be. Exactly, exactly. Because if, if your potential buyers are in your marketplace and they are looking to consolidate and one of their things might be to form a bigger group, 
then one of the things that they may want, they may want supply contracts that have got easy easy routes out of them yeah. rather than being tied in for a long time because what they may want to do is come in and um, get some of those deal synergies yeah. whereby they can get you know, bigger um, contracts with their suppliers and therefore get better prices in better terms. Yeah. Whereas if they if they come in and they say, well, you're tied into that supply, your your major supplier for the next five years, those synergies are harder to get. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you what, that, that's actually a really good point, and I think that um, that can often get overlooked when, when you're acting for a, acting for a buyer. Uh, from my experience of doing M and A work in the past, uh, the sort of deals that I, I typically pay close attention to um, to things like change of control clauses will be when you're dealing with local authorities, um, you know, big businesses like Coca Cola, because they tend to have a standard sets of terms and conditions that they will that they would contract on and be a, a, a very very um i'm quite right to say quite precious about who they will do business with so i think if you're going into those sectors in particular a detailed contract review as part of the due diligence is absolutely crucial yeah no i'd absolutely agree and you know it's, again sort of almost build up a strategy once you've identified these things don't necessarily think that just because you've seen a change of control clause that that's the end of it yeah. i think it's them working with your with the sellers, if you're the buyer here, to work together and say, well, actually, do you know what? We're going to need this contract going forward. It's got the change of control clause in it. How yeah. are we actually going to deal with it? Yeah. Um, you know, are we going to um, approach the other party, so the Coca-Cola or the council, yeah. before this transaction on, on the quiet? Yes, Sort of say this is what's going to happen. Can you give us the green light? Do you get a waiver off them and yeah. deal with it that way? Or you know, sometimes it's it's so sensitive that you just don't want this anyone to know at all. I agree, and sometimes you take a flyer on those. Um, Absolutely, and, 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 but there's a risk involved with that because they turn around and say, "Well, hold on." You, you didn't get our consent. Um, I guess worst case scenario, the, the contract gets cancelled. Um, slightly halfway best case scenario is they say yes fine um or the halfway house is they want to really renegotiate absolutely absolutely and yeah you know obviously here we've been focusing on change of control clauses which are yeah. really important for um where you're buying the shares of a business the other one to be wary of of course is assignment cl assignment clauses in contracts if you're yeah. just buying the assets yes. so you know that's a, that's a key a key thing to just bear in mind and many of the same things happen again so you might have an assignment provision in the contract that says you can't assign the contract or transfer it without our consent and again it's going to have those things written in maybe you know unless the, the other parties a competitor of ours or has sufficient financial standing but it's just that 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 thinking again of how your transactions working because for a for a share transaction you're looking at a change of control clauses yeah. Whereas for asset transactions, uh, where the shares aren't transferring, of course, you're going to be looking more at the assignment clauses in, in assignment uh, provisions within your contract. Yeah, and listen, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been years since I've done any proper contract work. But if there if there's no restriction in the contract against the signing, then I think the starting point is it can be assigned. Is that correct? That's right, unless it's what's called a personal service contract. So it's something where 
where the other party is so personally involved in what you've chosen. Yeah. There's a presumption against it, so something like a, a contract for an, for an artist or some such. Got it. Okay. So, so, so if there's no restriction on assignment in an asset sale, then they're freely assignable. And I think what you do in those circumstances is you can just post completion right to the, the other party and say, your contract has now been assigned to me. This is where at least, this is where you need to make payment to. And they can't object to that. But if there is a, a restriction uh, and you don't give notice, you don't get consent, then um, they can turn around and say, well, you're who we contracted with originally. We're, we're going to bring the contract to an end or, or renegotiate. And, and again, um, as you rightly pointed out, doing deals in the past, um, some clients have said, right, let's do the proper format and, and, and give no, let them know we're taking the, uh, the contract on. Other clients say, look, we'll deal with that post-completion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, you know, the assignment assignment clauses just need to sort of, again, draw another distinction, unfortunately, between sort of assignment and novation. Because you can only, say that. Yeah, only exactly. ever, you can only ever assign the benefit of a contract. So you can only ever assign the right to receive something under a contract. Yeah. If you're trying to get rid of the right to do something under a contract, your obligations under the contract, then you are going to need consent, irrespective of what the contract says, because you essentially need to do what's called a novation, yeah, which is the creation of a new contract, um, but on the same terms. Yeah, it's always going to be something that relies on three parties: the the incoming party, the outgoing party, and the continuing party. Which yeah. So you'd, you'd have that, and essentially a novation says that the incoming party takes the place of the outgoing party, and the incoming party and the continuing party continue to contract on the terms of the agreement. Okay, and I think I think the, the important part of that, again, unless uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that where you novate a contract, generally speaking, it's as if the two new parties were always parties to the original contract. So any any sort of claim for breach of contract arising from the original contract would lie with the two new novated parties. Is that correct? That is certainly on the base level of it. Yeah. But you can draft it so you essentially draw a line in the sand. Okay. Okay. You, you novate it with effect from a date and you yep. say, well, if there's been any problems prior to this date, you two sort it out. Yeah. But if there's anything coming after, we will sort we will sort it out. And even if you do a uh, an ovation from the very start of that contract, again, you know, you're going back to that position, generally what you'll want to do is in your, your sale and purchase agreement, or your asset purchase agreement, because you, you're talking here about assets, yeah. um, would be to have indemnity protection in relation to those contracts and any breaches that might have happened. Yeah. Uh, prior to the the date of transfer, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. And these, as I said to you before we started the podcast, actually, th these are real world problems. So, just by pure coincidence, today um, a deal that one of my partners did a, a few months ago um, that there was a clause inserted into the contract giving the sellers the right to uh, 
to novate the con or assign or novate the contract as as they wish to. Um, and the novation that's come through on that one is a is a, a novation from day one. So it, all liability under contract passes to, to the new novated parties. Um, the client was a bit concerned by that, but actually, the we're novating the sale contract from a limited company, which is probably a shell now, um, although we've got PGs for the warranty and indemnity, um, into individual names. So I've actually said you're in a far better position with that novation than you uh, than you were before it took place. So um, yeah, it, 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 it can work always, really. Well, look, Richard, that's been a really fascinating insight. This is a topic we could talk about for hours. Um, but I, I, I think if I could give one piece of sage advice, if you're looking to sell, um, don't leave a contract review to, you know, the month or two before you start looking for a buyer. In my view, I always think that selling has to be a two-year planning process um, at looking at your employment contracts, but just as importantly, looking at your contracts with your with your clients and your suppliers. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today, Richard. Um, this is John Andrews uh, on the Deal Lawyer podcast. If you've got any questions arising from any of the items we discussed today, uh, please do contact me on 07768 266 or my email john.andrews at jmw.co.uk. If you want a real expert on contracts and their provisions, uh, contact Richard. And Richard, how can we contact you? Yeah, absolutely. You can contact me on 07872 031224 or email me on richard.parkinson at jmw.co.uk. Speak to you soon. The Deal Lawyer Podcast with John Andrews, powered by JMW Solicitors.